Hi, friend. Welcome to episode 34 of Sally's Performing Arts Lab podcast. Today, my husband George, my daughter Emily, and I discussed fear of failure and imposter syndrome. Every day I gotta stop for a minute Think about how good my life is with you in it Every day I wanna stop and think about you podcast host Sally Adams. Every week I talk to people about creating original work for a live audience. Send an email anytime to sally at sallypal.com. Your ideas keep great conversations coming every Monday evening. Check out sallypal.com join for the free 20-page theater resource. Creator's Notebook insert number two on scheduling will soon be available. In the meantime, you can listen to episode 31 if you want an in-depth convo about scheduling your production. It's never too late to sign up to have access to the Creator's Notebook inserts. I'm interested in knowing what creators need as a performing arts resource. Do you need more information about venues? Do you want to know how to put butts in seats on the cheap? Would you like to connect with other creators? Do you need more practical tips? If there are things you want included in the Creator's Notebook, let me know by sending an email to sally at sallypal.com. I read them all. Challenge me. Be sure and listen until the end of the interview for concise advice from the interview and words of wisdom from George. Fear of failure can be barely noticeable or paralyzing. For artists in the world of performance, the fear of failing can overpower the drive to perform. Some great ideas and performances languish in hiding because an artist can't seem to get their work on the stage. The artist who succeeds in getting the work in front of an audience may struggle with another roadblock to full expression. Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is defined as a collection of feelings of inadequacy that persist despite evident success. The term was coined in 1978 by clinical psychologists Pauline R. Clance and Suzanne A. Imes. According to a study out of Georgia State University, a third of successful adults believe that they don't deserve to be where they are. Feelings of success are often overshadowed by the feeling that you are a fraud and anyone who says otherwise doesn't know enough to recognize your incompetence. A few weeks ago, I asked performing artists to share what they saw as roadblocks to mounting a successful production of original work. I expected to see things like finding a venue, funding a show, and putting butts in seats. While these received honorable mentions, the overriding responses were fear of failure and imposter syndrome. I distinguish between these two, although they have a lot in common. Fear of failure usually keeps you from taking action, while imposter syndrome means you took an action, but you can't believe your success was anything more than accidental. I'm currently reading a book given to me by my daughter Emily's fiancé, Beckett. The book is titled The Art of Possibility. Written by Rosamund Stone Zander and Benjamin Zander, it exposes the assumptions on which fear of failure and imposter syndrome are based. As a longtime drama teacher, I was never a big fan of arts competitions. I love arts festivals, performances, and sharing programs. But competitions where the work of one group of artists is measured against the work of another group of artists to determine which group is the best 
strikes me as sending the wrong message. It's a version of sports competition based on opinions rather than objective measurements. Many of us believe competitions are a necessary evil to inspire student artists to push their work to a higher level. But the arts competition model is flawed, and the Xanders explain why. All the manifestations of the world of measurement, the winning and losing, the gaining of acceptance and the threatened rejection, the raised hopes and the dash into despair, are all based on a single assumption that is hidden from our awareness. The assumption is that life is about staying alive and making it through, surviving in a world of scarcity and peril. This is where the book begins. The world we live in every day does not position anyone to reach their potential. For most of humanity, the opposite occurs. The book, The Art of Possibility, goes into detail describing ways to break free from the competition construct. One quote stood out for me. It's a quote from Agnes DeMille's book, Martha, The Life and Work of Martha Graham. In it, DeMille quotes Graham as saying, there is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one you in all of time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium, and it will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours, clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. This conversation is touched on from time to time in other interviews I've recorded. With Pat Hobbs in episode 32, he talks about imperfect perfection. He says that giving yourself freedom to make mistakes can take your performance to a whole new level. Vanessa Adams, in episode 28, knows that being vulnerable as an artist has risks, but that authenticity can help audience members connect both to the work and to each other. Emily Adams, in episode 31, revealed that she doesn't attend rehearsals of her own works to avoid what she calls backseat directing and trying to control the expression of the work. During the conversation, I mentioned the off-Broadway production of Peter and the Starcatchers. The actual title is Peter and the Starcatcher. It's singular. There's only one Starcatcher. The show is now closed, but it was amazing. We also mentioned The Amazing Hamilton by Lin-Manuel Please Be On My Podcast Miranda. None of us thinks Hamilton is garbage. In fact, Emily and I have been a bit obsessed with the show. But even Miranda admits the early days of creating the show had challenges. And just as I have no evidence of crappy versions of Hamilton, I have no proof that Eric Clapton didn't start out as a guitar god at age 12. It's just that teaching middle school students for over a decade, I can guess that he didn't start out playing Layla or Tears in Heaven the way he does now. Well, he couldn't have because they hadn't been written yet. When it comes to creating art for an audience, we all must start somewhere, or we don't start. Today, my husband George, my daughter Emily, and I explored fear of failure and imposter syndrome. 
of us are familiar with the fear of failure, but lately we've been hearing more and more about something called the imposter syndrome. It's on a continuum, according to my husband George, whom you'll hear from in a minute. Imposters suffer from chronic self-doubt and a sense of intellectual fraudulence. We also have the wonderful addition of my daughter Emily, who has had work performed at the Kennedy Center, has been published, and she knows an awful lot about dealing with breaking through this fear of failure. And so we're just gonna start with um, failure. Why is failure such a huge part of making art? And how do people deal with their fear of it? So my biggest problem is that uh, inherently my thing is not going to be original. You said that the base recipe is always the same, but the decoration can be different, or the painting can be of the same image, but you can change the perspective, the colors, or the style. Yeah, I mean, everything is, is either the Bible or the Odyssey. <laughs> That's pretty straightforward. I keep coming back to the notion of the audience of Sally Powell, and who is listening and why. And I think a lot of the people who listen to these Sally Powell podcasts are people that are looking for advice and inspiration from the people that are interviewed and from the advice that is given by them and by Sally. In the creative process, many people are stuck because they can't get started at all. I want to write a book. I want to paint watercolor images. I want to... Create a dance. Yeah, create a dance for a play. And they just can't even get going. The advice you can get from the Sally Powell program is to hear someone say, you can do this. Don't be afraid to give it a try. Yeah, but Emily's thought is, you got to just do it. You can't wait for somebody to push you over that ledge. Yeah, you can't. You have to be able to, to uh, motivate yourself. With self-motivation and a little bit of good advice, I'm ready now to take on the project and write a book. And so here I go and I don't know what to do. I don't know exactly how to take that on. And so advice, again, is critical for me. But then we get into the psychology of it, which is, I think, the part of the discussion here, which is I have this brain problem that tells me I can't write a good book. It might be because, like you were saying, Emily, because the idea I have is a worn-out idea and, I have, and it's been done too many times. Well, you know, I've been reading this book that Emily's fiancé Beckett gave me called Art of Possibility. Benjamin Zander would say that that's the downward spiral type of thinking that keeps us from being able to move forward. He says there's, there's nothing about that kind of thinking that's useful, and I know we all do it, so maybe what there is is to accept that you're in downward spiral thinking and like Bob Newhart in one of those classic old shows where his client who's uh, in a therapy session with him says, I have this problem and I keep doing this thing and it's causing trouble in my marriage and my home life and everything. And Bob Newhart's advice to him as a therapist is, stop, stop it, that thing. stop it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of where I get to when it comes to writing. Because I can't tell you how often I tell someone I write books or I write plays and they're like, oh, I wish I could do that. My answer is always, you can if you get to the point where you're thinking that I am writing garbage and everything I am writing is garbage, you need to think to yourself, okay, do you want to write garbage or do you want to write nothing? Because that. you could just write nothing. I need you to say that again because that is so good. Okay, so you need to say if, you're, if you keep telling yourself that you are just writing garbage, you need to ask yourself, okay, do I want to write garbage or do I want to write nothing? And, and a person who is not confident 
will struggle with that. But a person who has written, and I think many professional writers have said this, is you just sit down and you write. For someone who's not confident, that's actually incredibly freeing. Like, that was what kind of got me over the hump to do any of the writing that I've done at all when, it, when I started writing more seriously. Like, when I decided I was going to write something big, I frequently thought... And this was during my first writing projects. I frequently thought, what I am writing is terrible. And then I was like, okay, but I've written, you know, 5,000 words on it, 10,000 words on it, 25,000 words on it. That's something. And I can leave it and I can abandon it, which I have done before, or I can just finish it. And it's going to be garbage. And you're going to finish the garbage <laughs> and then you're going to make the garbage better. Yeah. I totally relate to that. I think one of the things that I relate to that is when I was writing Radio Kids and I thought, well, I've written songs before. What's, you know, what could be so hard about writing a musical? So, yeah. you know, and it was hard. I was looking up these tutorials, how to write a musical. How ridiculous is that? I reached out to some people who were terrific musicians. They helped me write these things. They fixed my mistakes, but it was a terrific student project. And if I had said no, this is going to be too hard, then I wouldn't well, be moving forward with other musicals. Well, and to write the best thing ever, to, to get to the place where you're going to write an amazing thing, you have to write the garbage. Yes. You just have to write the garbage. <laughs> I mean... When you think about dancers creating work... Well, you have to dance the garbage. Yeah. You have to direct the garbage. And you have to be willing to fail and learn from it. There are people who are stuck in the mindset where you can't move forward because you can't be successful. The whole point is you can't learn if you don't fail. As a creative person, you kind of have to adopt this optimistic nihilism point of view where... You're going to have to reach the point where it's like, nothing that I'm doing is good. None of it's good. It's all terrible, and I'm going to finish it, and then I can make it less terrible. When, with the stuff I'm working on, I'm at the point where I'm struggling to finish it. And if I feel like I cannot finish it, I won't. That's the thing. Is when I say you either write garbage or you write nothing, sometimes the answer is to write nothing and to start a new project and to do something else. But don't stop writing, period. I want to share a quote from Martha Graham, who was quoted by Agnes DeMille in the book Martha, The Life and Work of Martha Graham. And here's the quote. There is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all of time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and it will be lost. I think what happens is you might push through to finish a project on the assumption that I realize I am not writing the best thing that's ever been written, but I'm going to finish it. And then if you can get there, you just might find that you have in fact done something that's pretty all right. That's pretty good it becomes a, a success for you. Because ultimately the success we're looking for is not necessarily, I mean, it's great if you can have a career out of that and make a living or make some money or whatever, but ultimately isn't the point of creating art and sharing it to make a connection? No, it's money. <laughs> okay, okay, now I'm gonna, yes, fine. Damn it. Uh, 
this is where I think you get to the imposter syndrome, is when you have finished it, and it has, in fact, landed on its feet, and somebody likes it, and something good happens to it, and you are still thinking, this has been garbage from day one. How yep. have I yep. gotten here? This I'm an imposter. These, these people Why are do fooled. these people like this garbage? <laughs> That's right. I have, these people are idiots if I they have, like my stuff. I have fooled all these people, and I'm not as good as they say I am. And yep. and, and this is the imposter syndrome, I think. Yep. This is one of my long-held theories. First of all, the arts is subjective, it's not objective. Your mother was talking earlier about the fact that, you know, if I'm going to run a race, I run it in a certain speed and, and it's clocked on a clock and it's very objective it how fast I run. That's why I hate play competitions. Yeah, in the arts, you don't get that. You have a subjective standard of what's good and what's bad. So then you have extraordinarily successful artists and people come to mind like John Belushi and Kurt Cobain, people who were revered for their success in their chosen art who ended their lives. And from the outside, you look at that and you go, what the hell? I mean, if I had the kind of applause and success and recognition they had, I would be on cloud nine. And I think that dark place comes from the fact that it's such a subjective world. When people tell you, you were great out there. There's something in your mind that says, no, I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't great. I, I flubbed the line. I didn't do something right. I messed up in some way. And I can't believe you. I don't trust you when you tell me how good I did. You're getting into something Pat Hobbs talked about a couple of episodes ago. And he actually pointed out that he had been operating in that world for most of his performance career. And he said, I actually learned this so late in life. He finally realized that if he could go in there and just be in the moment really connecting with the audience and not worry about the off entrance or coming in on the wrong verse or whatever. He said, then it became about sharing something and it stopped being about being perfect. And he said, it was so freeing that I felt like my most imperfect performance was as perfect as I can ever imagine being. And I think the imposter syndrome issue then is the thing that you need to be ready for is that the creative thing that you want to do, that you push yourself to complete, just might be good. I mean, the worst thing that can happen is you get cast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we have always, I've always said that. Said that. <laughs> the worst thing you happen at an audition is you get the role, because then, then the real trial begins. But that's the thing I think is frustrating, is that you work so hard to achieve a thing, and then for some reason you have talked yourself out of accepting that you've done it well and you did the thing you wanted to do. Like when you were at the Kennedy Center, did you ever have moments where you thought, what am I doing here? Does it make me incredibly vain if I say no? <laughs> no. You were young. And I, I think, was young. Yeah. I think young people have less imposter syndrome than adults do. I know mine certainly has grown as I got older. Yeah. I think I think the biggest imposter syndrome I've ever had actually was during the talk back at Heller for I Wish You Actually Liked Me because I 
wrote the show. I wish you actually liked me, and I, I produced it myself. Um, and then the show was seen by some board members from a theater in town, and they picked it up for their regular season. And then during that whole thing, which I said in a, in a previous episode I was on, I don't I don't go to rehearsals, but it's a show that I've written, and I'm not in it. I don't go to rehearsals. Right, um, right. You've mentioned that on the air. But in the end of it, I was asked to come up on stage. One of their performances had a talkback, which is when audience members can ask the cast a question. The cast, or in this case, the writer and the director as well. And people were asking me, you know, how did you come up with this? Well, how did you do that? Like, people were treating people were treating me like I was a writer. And <laughs> it just blew my mind that anyone would think that this play that I wrote while drinking way too much Mountain Dew and being in my underwear was anything, anything. <laughs> but these people were treating it like it was an actual good thing. And I was like, what is happening with that? Because it's not. Well, it's August Osage County reskinned. <laughs> not only was it a really good thing, but it, it connected with people. They related to I it. know, and I just had no freaking clue that was going to happen. Yeah, and that's where I think you have to honor the audience. You know, you can feel whatever you feel, but once you've gotten it out there, now that we're in the imposter syndrome conversation, then you honor the audience and you say, you get to decide how you relate to this. Well, Vanessa that Adams was, that talked was, about that. No, that was the biggest way that I was able to mostly get past my imposter syndrome like i don't have a lot of imposter syndrome anymore i'm too tired for that um but <laughs> it's too much big, damn work it's too much work to not think i'm amazing um <laughs> but no one of the biggest ways that i got past that was during times when my shows would be performed and i would be asked questions about it and i would be treated with some respect by directors or, or cast members or audience members or whatever and i just had to remind myself if i was this audience member or this director or this cast member would i want the writer to think i was stupid i don't think that i would so i had to, i just had to be like you cannot think these people are stupid for liking your work and then when you get past that you think but then why would they like your work and then you reach the point of oh Maybe it's good. What I've heard is, is that when, if you're performing and uh, someone comes to you after your performance and compliments you, your job is not to argue with them <laughs> about how you don't think you did, in fact, do that well. Your job is to, to say thank you and to validate them and to encourage the process moving forward. That's a version of rejecting this imposter notion. And we've, I think, culturally been taught that we shouldn't brag and we shouldn't be too high on ourselves. And building off that, I think one of the best baby steps that you can take towards getting rid of your imposter syndrome, or at least diminishing its effect, is learning how to take a compliment. Because I think a lot of people don't know how to take a compliment. And when someone compliments you, your job is to just say, thank you. You don't have to say anything else. You can think whatever you'd like. But when you put stuff out there like, oh, no, it wasn't very good. Like, if you physically say that, you are putting out there in the universe that you genuinely were not good. And that's not going to help you at all. You can think that stuff as much as you want. But a really great baby step towards getting rid of imposter syndrome is when someone tells you that thing was amazing. You just say, thank you. Yeah. I want to point out real quickly if anybody's hearing bonus sounds we have a washing machine going in the background that's turned on mysteriously and uh you have a dog that's chewing on a bone yes i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> strange that i could recognize that sound 
I actually love this conversation for this reason. I want people that listen to my show to want to produce their work and get it in front of a live audience. But I don't want them to assume that doing that means you're done. There's no way that that's the end of it. That is the first step in creating a relationship between you and audience. Whether, you know, that audience is five middle schoolers who are hanging out in your room after school or thousands of opera goers in New York City. That's the thing is there's always another theater. Right. And every mistake, every failure, every attempt that doesn't work the way you think it should is an opportunity for you as an artist to look and see how can I improve to connect with the audience and grow and learn. And I'm struggling right now with this podcast with that same conversation because I had a little bit of a plateau with my audience recently. And I thought, oh no, I'm doing something wrong. People don't like my podcast anymore. Once you revel in the things that go wrong, they actually will release you from trying so hard that you can get to a place where you're vulnerable. And that to me is key. If you can allow yourself to live through those horrible moments of embarrassment and get yourself to the place of allowing yourself to be vulnerable enough to be a conduit for the work as opposed to being represented by the work because people feel so judged rather than allowing the work to be out there on its own and you be the conduit we start to equate ourselves with the work much like many parents equate themselves with their child's behavior uh -huh. it's like you put the play out there and people judge it and say this was okay and all of a sudden you're hearing you as a person are okay. Yeah, you can't do that. Yeah, it's got to be, you've got to let the work fail sometimes. And when somebody says that didn't really work, it can't be about you as a person. It can't be about your character flaws or anything. It has to be about the work. It has to be about the connection you're making with the audience. It has to be this artistic flow. Vanessa Adams says some great things about flow in an episode and how valuable that is. Not just for audience relating to artist or audience relating to the work, but audience relating to other members of the audience. Yeah, I mean, when you can feel yourself crying at a scene and you can look around and see other people crying, that's an important moment. It is, and you're like, oh, we are in this together. I think that's the part about creating original theater or original dance or original music that brings people together. I remember with a group of students, we were in New York and we saw Peter and the Star Catchers and we got front row seats. It was a small theater where they weren't on Broadway at the time. And all of my students across the front row, a bunch of middle schoolers and their parents were just in stitches. They were laughing wildly at some of the stuff that was going on on stage. It was a very funny play. And there was a moment during the play when the actors really started to connect with that front row of students. Of course, you know, these are Broadway actors. They're connecting with everybody in the room. But you could tell that those kids brought the performance up a notch because they were so engaged in the story and it caused the artists on stage to engage further with the story. And they were buoyed by the kids. And then afterwards, the kids were in the hallway. We were all waiting to get together and, and head back to the hotel. And they saw a couple of the actors. And the actors approached us. That's like a first. I love that. It was so great. The actors approached us and thanked us for the reaction that they were giving during the show. And I thought, wow. Well, you can't pay for a good audience. Right. 
Yeah, that's why you just got to keep going. You got to let things fail. Sometimes they'll fail, but they'll lead to a greater success than the success of doing it right. There's no joy in that. Doing it right's fine, but you got to do the garbage. Got to do the garbage. And you got to get past the cultural roadblock that tells you somehow that no matter how good others think it is, that somehow you don't deserve to hear that. We're all probably guilty of letting the cultural dynamic of don't brag, don't be too high on yourself, steal from us some of the satisfaction of, of a good work well done. Yeah, I think a phenomenal thing to get a hold of if you're able to is early drafts of famous shows or shows that you really enjoy, because then you can look at it and see, oh, at one point, Hamilton was garbage. Yeah, any show. I mean, any show, any you, show is garbage. At yeah, first. and any artist. When you think about Eric Clapton playing as a twelve-year-old, yeah, it would have been pretty crappy. Great for a twelve-year-old, you know. You can't expect to go out immediately and write the coolest thing ever, but you also can't let the fact that the first things you've written are not very good make you think that they will forever not be very good, or that you will never write anything good. Yeah, if you give up, that might be the truth. Yeah, I mean the first. The first plays I wrote, the first book I wrote, they're terrible. They're terrible. Well, I thought they were pretty good for your age. The first things that I wrote were terrible. And I have now written some things that are pretty good. But I had to write the terrible things to get there. So what advice would you give? Write the garbage. My advice would be to expect success. And my advice would be to fail with zest. Zest. Fail like you meant to fail hard. You guys, thank you so much. Yeah. That was great. You're welcome. I love you guys. I love you too. We love you too. <laughs> it's time now for concise advice from the interview. A short version of tips on dealing with fear of failure and imposter syndrome. Get up, get up. Here are nine important bits of advice. Number nine. You can do this. Don't be afraid to give it a try. Number eight, learn to motivate yourself. Number seven, there's nothing about downward spiral thinking that's useful. Number six, you can write garbage or you can write nothing. Writing garbage means you're still writing. Number five, Bragging and sharing your work are not the same thing. Number four, to get to the place where you can create an amazing thing, you must create some garbage along the way. Number three, you won't learn and grow if you can't fail. Number two, let go of being technically perfect and your work will connect with an audience. And the number one piece of advice on overcoming fear of failure and imposter syndrome, when someone compliments your work, just say thank you. That's it for concise advice from the interview. Check out the blog, sallypal.com, for articles and podcast episodes. You can be part of the momentum that's building. Keep an eye out for social media opportunities to share with the Sally Pal community. I want this podcast to give you tools to defeat your fears and share your unique artistic expressions. If you block it, 
it will never exist through any other medium and it will be lost. The show notes include links to some of the things we talked about today. Use the links as a springboard to launch your work. And as always, thank you for following, sharing, subscribing, reviewing, joining, and thank you for listening. I want you to pursue your dream to have your work on the stage in front of a live audience. Sure, it's scary, but Sally Pal is here with resources, encouragement, and a growing community of people like us. I'm Sally, and this is Sally Pal. The P-A-L in Pal stands for Performing Arts Lab. Also, tell your friends. Word of mouth is the only way to know about Sally Pal. Thanks to Steve, Vicki, Emily, George, Pat, Julie, Beckett, and all of you who've been sharing Sally Pal. Now, I have one bit of wisdom from my husband, George, the coolest guy on the planet. George, what's your wisdom for today? You can't find the thing that does the job best until you find the things that don't. That is well said, George. Well said. Excellent advice indeed. If you're downloading and listening on your drive to work or falling asleep to my super scintillating sounds, like my sister does, let me know you're out there. If you like Sally Pal and want to see the show continue, go to iTunes and leave a review. The art we put on the stage really does make a difference. I want to help you create original shows for a live audience. All the performances you've seen on any stage once lived only in someone's imagination. Now, keep that channel open. Think about it. Every day I gotta stop for a minute. Think about how good my life is with you. Every day I wanna stop and think about it. Yeah, that was good for today, especially. Yeah. I'm just gonna start that whole dang thing again. Why is it that every time I start recording, Charlie decides to lie down and start snoring? <laughs> it's just like clockwork. I feel like I'm clipping a little bit. I'm going to just turn this down a tick. Many of us have a lot of familiarity. That's easy for you to say. It's too loud! Like, who eats peanut butter right before they record? Nope. Okay, I'm done. Okay. I'm not afraid. This is important, George. It's important. Y'all stop making fun of me. Why? Is it doing that? Hmm. In-depth 
in depth, in depth, in depth, in depth. If you say it a lot, it sounds really weird. In depth, in depth, in depth, in depth. Oh, that's worse. No time for nothing. Okay. If you could see these waveforms, you would understand what I'm talking about. No, sorry, it's just time for concise advice. I forgot to write down the advice. Being a friend of the show. Keep an eye out for bleh. So how's oh, why how's do these waveforms look so I'm bad? I'm turning off the recorder. Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> George is coming from the other side of the house. It's a very small house. 